Welcome to Skeptics, the show where we take a deep dive into the world of tech, news and research. I'm Josh. And I'm Nayana. And this week we are joined by a very special guest from the OII, our friend and colleague Pratham Janeja. Hi Pratham, Hello. how's it going? Doing well, doing well. How are you guys? Yeah, good. great. We're good. Um, and this week, well, we, we have Pratham here to talk about a few aspects of his research and also about a topic that he's very interested in and Josh and I are also very interested in. Um, listeners may know, we know that we've done a couple of episodes on US politics and technology and Pratham's here to talk to us a little bit about that. Thanks, Pratham. So, Josh, uh, without further ado, I know this is something that you are specifically very interested in, both from yeah. a research perspective and a kind of Practice. personal interest yeah. perspective as well. Yeah, yeah Pratham and I have talked about various aspects of this over the years. Um, <laughs> so I'm really excited to hear a bit more about your, your PhD. Um, maybe just to, the question we usually ask people to start with is kind of where are you coming here from? Why this interest in this particular line of research for spending several years on? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I always say that there, I really have no business doing a PhD. And now that I'm saying it on recording, I'm a little nervous about that going out onto the internet. But broadly, so I was born and raised in the US. And for undergrad, I went to Notre Dame, where I studied computer science and political science. And in my time in South Bend, Indiana, I got to know the then mayor of South Bend, Pete Buttigieg. And I got to know his father, Joe Buttigieg, who's my literature professor very well. Uh, and through my relationships with both of them, I realized that these two things that I had separate interests in politics and then programming, there was a lot of good to be done by combining the two of them. Uh, and I found my first love for that on the government side, working for the South Bend local government, uh, helping build technology to improve city services. Um, and from there, it all kind of took off. I you know, ended up working on Pete's campaign as a data scientist after I graduated school. Uh, and then I got a scholarship to come to Oxford. And I thought, OK, I'll do the MSc in social data science. I'll do the Master of Public Policy. And I'll keep like deferring <laughs> any decision on which of these paths I'm going to fall down. Uh, and then an opportunity opened up to defer even further, uh, which was to do the DPhil. And um, broadly, I think my interest with the DPhil, a lot of my academic work in the past has been on voting and voting rights. And I've always been kind of intrigued by the way that elections and the administration of elections seem so behind on technology relative to like every other aspect of politics and tech broadly. Um, and so my research kind of focuses on the way that we can use digital technologies to potentially reduce the cost of voting in like a rational choice sense, but rather just how do we reduce barriers to voting in the U.S.? Um, and can digital technologies help us with that? Yeah, that's an awesome overview. I think um, probably listeners today hearing the words digital and democracy in the same sentence will be will fall on the negative side of the ledger in terms of what the impact that they imagine that's having. You know, I've been here a bit bit longer than, than you, and I can remember sitting in this room 10, 10 or so years ago, really kind of hearing about the extolling virtues of of, uh, of digital technology on democracy, because at that time it was perceived that more like, you know, the Obama era of kind of using data to target supporters and things like that, that all flips as we know in 2016, which was such an inflection point. Um, but how do you see these kind of waves, I guess, of kind of, uh, internet scholarship and how they've changed in relation to what's happening in the real world with this issue. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is where we have to get into the nuance of what sorts of technology and who is implementing it comes into question. And so we were talking about this right before we started recording. But broadly, I think that we have to think about the role that government can play in using technology to make things better, which is what a sizable portion of my DFIL is about is uh, you know, does online voter registration improve turnout rates? Can we build machine learning models that detect voter suppression? Those are like very specific government-led projects that I'm proposing. 
Um, and then there's also how do outsiders use technology to influence uh, elections and government and politics. And thankfully, I don't really study that stuff. There's plenty of people at the OAI who do. It looks like the outcomes of that are quite bad. Um, and we have to. I think we have to be really careful when we think about like what is intentional and what is built for a specific public service, and then what is built to build power. Um, and those are two very, very different um, strategies. Mm. I've, I'm so interested in your experience because you have this kind of basis in look, you know, being in like a small town, or maybe it's a small town. Hundred thousand people, same small as Oxford. T- Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, so properly small town in the US and, you know, ex- experiencing, I guess, what data means to these people or like what voting or what politics means to people on a really local level. Um, I'm really interested in whether your time in the UK has influenced your thinking on this at all. Um, are there any kind of, I know size wise may be very hard to compare, but are there any kind of models or systems of practice in the UK that you think are influential or interesting or comparable to the US? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the UK politics broadly, and you, you two can correct me if I'm <laughs> wrong on all of the assumptions that I've made from the Guardian articles I've read over my three years here. Um, there's a lot about the UK political system that's really intriguing to me. The one that I think about the most that's been on my mind a lot, that's not all that related to technology, um, but I think relevant is how often I find that the British public tries to hold politicians to like account mm-hmm. about like hypocrisy and not acting like the public. And so when I think about like COVID vaccines, for example, every single British politician was like very careful of showing like I got my vaccine mm-hmm. in my age group or in my health group. And like there was pictures and screenshots and all that. In the US, no one would bat an eye if politicians all got theirs early. I mean, they did. Like a bunch of politicians did get theirs early yeah. because we have prioritized it in that sense. And that was like not mm. a particular issue. Um, so I think that's an interesting phenomenon. We probably don't have to talk about that too much. It's just a thing I've thought about a lot. And the other thing is I think the UK has a really good model for the way that we implement digital technologies as a part of government. I mean, Turing is awesome. There's uh, like the UK digital services, like team in general, really, really cool work. And the kind of university government interactions there I think are really cool. I think what's going on with ARIA here is really cool. Um, There's just like a lot of investment, I think, being made in how government can keep Mm. up with technology. And yeah, the pay is awful here compared to in the U.S., but like the fact that it exists, I think, is like really strong infrastructure. And I think the U.S. has learned a lot from the U.K. and Canada in trying to build its own versions of this. Yeah, no, that's a really interesting point about um, investment, because again, the flip side of that in the States is that a huge amount of money is put into politics in the sense of campaigning and electoral democracy. Obviously, there's also a lot of government funding in the US for for digital technology as well. Um, But that would be another thing I would kind of see as different between the US and the UK when it comes to that, that this sheer amount of money in politics. Part of your research does talk about kind of voting potential for online voting and things like that. But what we have, I think you probably agree, seen in the last few years, particularly on the right in the US, is an attempt to use money and other means to stop voting. So how do you wrestle with that kind of ethical conundrum, if you like, when it comes to your work? Yeah, I mean... I think that the primary goal of my work is to make voting easier Mm. in the U.S. And we can, like, get into specifics now. It's probably useful. Um, So the broader project is called, like, the cost of voting or digital technologies and the cost of voting in U.S. elections. The actual heading needs to be figured out at some point. (laughs) Um, But the idea is 
there's three stages of the voting process, roughly. There's the process of registering to vote, the process of choosing your method of voting, and then the process of acting out that method of voting. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious about the ways that digital technologies might improve or dis- like disimprove, not improve, uh, the process at each of those stages, mm-hmm. right? And so in the first stage, voter registration, states have been using online voter registration since like 2002, I think Arizona implemented it. Mm-hmm. There's very little research on if it works, who uses it, um, and if it's improving registration or turnout outcomes at all. Um, and of the research we do have, no one is really doing a study of the platforms themselves. Because in Arizona, if I go to register to vote online, there's 22 languages that I can do that in. I think in Jersey, there's like four. Mm. Uh, and like that means that these are not just a binary, you have OVR or you don't have OVR. Mm-hmm. It's like these are implemented differently. So I'm proposing some work to analyze that. Uh, and then the second uh, stage is choosing your method of voting. And that's online voting is something that we talk about all the time, right? I think this is an awful idea. I think online voting is a very bad idea in the United States uh, for this for this very similar reason, which is that if you look at our trust in institutions and in democracy in the U.S., mm. there is none. Like, people do not trust the security, do not trust mm-hmm. elections, do not trust politicians. Uh, those rates are really, really poor. And they're much higher in countries that have successfully implemented online voting, like Estonia. Um, and, you know, more power to them. Awesome. In the U.S., even if you built the most secure online voting system, some sizable portion of the population is going to be very upset about it. And then there's also all of the equity yeah. concerns that come from something like that in a country that has done such a poor job of implementing rural broadband uh, with like inequitable digital literacy, et cetera. So we'll write a piece about that too. Yeah. So people being kind of feeling excluded from online voting because either, either because of a lack of trust or because they just don't know how to use those systems. Yeah. I mean, how could a system be easy enough to use that like the elderly could vote or people in quite rural parts of the country? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That is fascinating. I, I suppose it also kind of, you know, you mentioned Estonia. In how much of your work do you use like kind of these comparative systems and what kind of countries or what kind of systems do you think, oh, that's a, that's an approach that the U.S. could be taking with, yeah. with this kind of thing? Yeah. Um, not too much yet, but that online voting paper that I will be working on at some <laughs> unidentified uh, time uh, in the next few years, I think the, the main goal of that work is to combine the literature that we have on the success and like impact of online voting in countries that have implemented it with the literature on security and trust studies of online voting. Because these two fields of literature do not touch like touch each other at all. And I think that if we're going to think about this from a policy perspective, we have to examine, does this increase turnout for whom? And then also, is it safe? Is it secure? And a lot of the security studies make me think it's not secure, but maybe other countries have figured it out for themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. We have to combine those two, and we need a global perspective for that. But then we also need to narrow down to the U.S. perspective to see, like, what would happen if we were to implement this in the U.S. And I say this as if it hasn't already been tried. West Virginia just, like, started doing online voting a couple years ago. Interesting. Just, like, started doing it with an app that is really untransparent and, like, has a bunch of security flaws and, like, sent a Michigan professor to the FBI because they were like, this guy's asking too many questions. (laughs) So, like, not great. I don't trust votes. I don't think that's the name of the app. Uh, And uh, I don't think West Virginia should have just like started doing online voting on their own when like no one has done any research on whether or not this should be done in the U.S. Mm. I think one of the other um, aspects of that uh, that's quite unique or quite specific to American politics is how obviously 
polarized the country is, but how that kind of polarization filters its way into these kind of processes mm. that you're talking about. So these decisions about how difficult or easy it, it is to vote often have very like localized yeah. consequences. Yeah. Um, you talked about already the kind of state-by-state state comparisons, which is quite a useful feature of the American system for academics because yeah. you do have some natural experiments yeah. to look at. Um, but h- how do you, um, I guess, think more broadly about the relationship between these kind of either national or just widespread systems and then the very kind of local nature of, of retail politics, as they call it, in, yeah. in the U.S.? Yeah, Um I think voting rights in America is like one of the most unequitable systems that we have. And the state by state or local by local comparisons is a really good way to say that. Um, Okay, so the last part of my research uh, after the online voting is work that I've already mostly started. And um, basically, the idea is after the 2018 election in Georgia, I noticed that there was a lot of voter suppression happening in Georgia. And the best place to find out about it was Twitter. People were posting pictures of very long lines, uh, mostly filled with black voters at these polling sites in like metropolitan areas that didn't receive their machines or didn't have power or like one thing or the other. And it's like as much as, you know, the governor at the time and the secretary of state wanted to say like, oh, these are just like honest mistakes. It's like they're only happening in certain spaces. Right. And they're only happening to certain kinds of voters. The problem is we know voter suppression happens in America. We have like very good guesses as to whom it happens to, which is minorities uh, and you know, people with so low socioeconomic status, people who tend to vote more progressively broadly. Mm. Um, so we know that this happens. We don't have evidence of it because how do you get evidence of voter suppression other than like sending polling observers to every polling site? Mm. So I had this idea that we could build a machine learning model that would detect when people are tweeting about voter suppression at their polling place. And it works, and it's really good, and we can link the paper or something. But the broader picture here is that now we have data that we can use to try and analyze where, what localities to whom voter suppression is happening. And that's the next part of the project, because different states have drastically different voter identification laws, uh, voting rights laws in general. There are states where you can use your gun license as ID to vote, but you cannot use your public student ID. Um, and there are states where you don't have to use ID at all. There are states where you don't have to register to vote. In Colorado, everyone gets mailed a mail-in ballot. These are just like drastically different processes, and that's the nature of federalism in the U.S. But I think that what we need is action at the federal level to set the bar much higher, so that you can own like you know you can make things easier if you want to. But we need to get to like everyone being at some level of easy very quickly, um, because right now I just don't see how we can continue to call America a functioning mm. democracy if like people just can't vote. You know what's so interesting about those voter suppression lines is that you always, I mean, it shows a lot about the reach of Twitter, given that I have seen many of those, yeah. um, and I'm in the UK. My brother lives in Georgia, which is one of the reasons why, you know, I know about this. But um, people always show these cues, and partly it's to show voter suppression, but they're also kind of comments like, so inspirational. These people waited 12 hours yeah. to vote. And you're like, this isn't inspirational. Yeah. No one should be waiting 12 hours to vote. Mm-hmm. Um, I know we, we can't compare like the size of the UK, but like, you know, people don't wait to vote here. Yeah, exactly. And if you have to wait to vote, you're probably losing quite a lot of voters. Yeah. Um, you know, a democracy should function where people can just go in and out and do it. Well, as I think we've usually done it here on the way to work, on the way back from work, yeah. right? Yeah, you shouldn't absolutely. be taking a day off for it. It's so, I mean, there should just be, an infinite amount of ways of voting. I think in Sweden, like, you can vote at the train station on your way to work. That's awesome. Like, we should have that running everywhere in the U.S. And, like, I also, like, 
thank you for forgiving the U.S. by saying, like, we can't compare size. But, like, that's not a good excuse, right? Like, the U.K. has fewer poll workers than the U.S. does because of population. These things should scale quite mm. easily. And after some point of studying voting for a few years, you, like, have to lose this sense of, like, oh, well, it's just, like, a systems thing and we have to solve it. It's just, like, no, there are people in power who actively want to remain in power by preventing people from voting. Mm. Uh, and that's just, like, the situation that we, like, live in in yeah. the U.S. Not to let the U.K. off the hook, because <laughs> this is something that's also changing in the U.K. as well. Often mm. it's the case that where the U.S. goes, the U.K. will follow yeah. in these kind of yeah. uh, democracy technology-type debates. And it's, it's the case that... Um, uh, the UK is introducing ID yeah. rules around voting, which yeah. is not something which I've never had so far in my lifetime, yeah. and it's happening very quickly. I think with the same motivations that you allude to yeah. in, in the US context. So, not for the moment to let the, let the UK off the hook. There's far better examples there that, yeah, of, of, of good of good cases. But you said, you know, just to push you a little bit, you said, um, you know, the, the more places to vote, the better. Yeah. Mm. But then you've also, also proved said that online voting is not the way forward, and, and clearly we all carry these devices around in our pockets, and that would, in theory, make it very easy to yeah. vote. So the, the show you're pointing to is accessibility versus trust, I think, right? Yeah. Um, or accessibility versus authenticity. Yeah. What is it about, I mean, you covered this already a bit, but just to delve into it a bit more, what is it precisely about digital devices, digital, like the internet as an infrastructure, which either actually makes it less trustworthy or in our perception makes it tr less trustworthy? Yeah. And if it's the latter, is there anything we can do at the edges mm. there to make it a bit more so? I think it's both. Um, so perceptions i think that's kind of intuitive right like a lot of people don't trust their devices they don't like people get mad at their remotes i think that there's just like this broader picture probably less so of people our age or people who are literally studying at the oxford internet institute like we probably have a better relationship with technology and trust but also just like i was unable to find a security study of an online voting platform that didn't find a vulnerability that would let you change right. or find who someone voted for right. and so these might these these systems might exist but in the U.S., we already have elections mandated by the federal government, run by state governments, handed off to county governments, and sometimes handed off to precincts. To have, like, secure systems mm. that could be implemented at that level of federalism seems completely impossible to me. Uh, when, like, we have, like, voter registration databases, like, hacked all the time. At, for my undergrad thesis, I had to send freedom of information requests to a bunch of states uh, to get access to some of their voting files and some of the information about their voting files. A state sent me, a, like, a sizable number of, like, confidential information <laughs> by mistake as a result <laughs> of that. Uh, I'm laughing, like, but yeah, There's not. a whole process there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so, like, I don't, I don't trust... I, I, I personally, like, for, as from the academic perspective and also just, like, as a regular voter, mm. would not trust online voting at yeah. all in the U.S. Maybe this is what um, – I know this has been a kind of debate that happens in, like, Supreme Court and, like, you know, more generally in the U.S. about how much do people actually understand technology. We saw this a little bit with, you know, people like Mark Zuckerberg kind of testifying. And I think that the impact of what technology is or, like, what is social media is still quite probably understood by – maybe largely older populations in the U.S. Uh, and so the thing that you might accidentally send confidential information, like that could probably still quite easily happen. Yeah. Also, I, I laughed at that, but obviously that is quite terrifying. Yeah. And imagine that was your confidential information being yeah. sent to a random Just undergrad. Just random student. undergrad, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, well, one thing, I don't know how to actually frame this question, but next year is an election year. Yeah. <laughs> it's also an election year in the UK, actually. Almost certainly. Yeah, almost certainly. We've had so many elections that I'm losing track a little bit. Uh, obviously, in the UK, it could happen some other time. Um, what kind of, do you have any sort of predictions or thoughts on how 
how technology, you know, could be shaping the election next year, uh, as opposed to how, you know, how it's moved on perhaps from 2020 and things yeah. that we're likely to see next year. Yeah. So I'll, I'll, I probably don't have any like particularly talented observations for the future, but it might be helpful to talk a little bit about yeah. how technology is used in campaigns yeah. like yeah. broadly. Uh, so I was on the data team for, for Pete's campaign. And uh, I think this is pretty universal is that in Republican and Democratic campaigns, you're going to see like a sizable data team that has some software that's combining a data set that is like everyone who's registered to vote in the U.S. Mm-hmm. with all of their internal data sets and then models that have predictions for if they're going to turn out to vote, if they're going to turn out to vote for your candidate, what party they have, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And so like most of what you're doing is building data sets to give to organizers saying mm-hmm. like, hey, these are the doors to knock on. Uh, our model shows that like this person has like an 80% chance of voting for Joe Biden. Like you should probably go knock on I've knocked on those doors using that yeah. same information myself. <laughs> so yeah. Exactly. And um, you know, the the sophisticated data science that's happening here is mostly in that model scoring. Those are usually bought from vendors. Uh, and some teams build their own internal stuff, which I think we need to be doing much more of. Uh, and we need more transparency around like what consumer data is being used to predict if I'm going to vote for Joe Biden or not. Like what there's also like problems with equity, like uh, black people and white people in the U.S. turn out at very similar numbers in national mm-hmm. elections. A lot of these models, though, if you add up the likely turnout scores, will show that white people will turn out way more than black people, which means that you're more likely to like go knock on the doors of white people and engage them in politics because the model is telling you they're more likely to vote. Why when that's that? just not true, I have no idea. I wish I knew. Yeah, I wish I knew what biases these models. Um, But I think that's like a serious problem. And so, I mean, a lot of people smarter than me who actually want to continue working on political campaigns are thinking about this. And I'm sure that they will do a good job, uh, like trying to address the equity concerns there. Um, But broadly, like, I think we're going to keep seeing the role of data science, like really informing both investment finance and like door knocking and organization uh, techniques uh, in in political campaigns, but then also we have to like think about the role of social media in all of this, right? And like TikTok wasn't a thing in 2020, mm-hmm. uh, and I imagine it's going to be like a very important thing for most campaigns. Maybe it was a thing in 2020. I don't know, but I saw it used on a kind of more like maybe not on like a national level, yeah. but with more kind of specific candidates, like in the Georgia runoff. Mm-hmm. I think it was used um, quite a lot, um, and it helps if you have a young candidate yeah. and someone who's, you know comfortable making videos, understands how to speak to a camera. I mean, those are skills that, you know, good politicians in the U.S. have already had to, you know, cultivate. And then now on TikTok, it's like, do it faster. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) I think most presidential campaigns are going to be shooting in the TikTok aspect ratio. Mm -hmm. And that's like, that's drastically going to change things for us. And how much money they spend advertising on social media versus on TV, because TV spending is still just like, a giant portion of campaign yeah. spend. Yeah. Um, these are all things that I'm interested in finding out about and glad that I will do nothing uh, with. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Do, do you have a sense at the moment of whether broadly the Republicans or Democrats are, are more advanced in this kind of stuff? Because it's flitted between. I always like to remind people that actually Bob Dole had a website before Bill Clinton did in 96. Yeah. Then we had a lot of Democratic dominance, particularly with Obama. Uh, and then Trump in his own Hmm. freaky way used twitter to his advantage i think in in 16 do you have a sense now whether the parties are yeah i think that the democrats have a better data and data science infrastructure broadly this is i mean republicans have been throwing a lot of money at this yeah. recently uh we also have a like a we i say it i've admitted it uh we also <laughs> we also have a um 
like a much stronger like online grassroots fundraising infrastructure with Act Blue. The the Republicans have something called Win Red, which is just I just think it's so funny to just like literally copy the name. Uh, it just doesn't do nearly as well. But also they have fewer small donor uh, small donations. But like I think the Republicans have figured out social media, like <laughs> or it, like in terms of like Donald Trump's power over social media. He's not on these platforms right now, but he's allowed to be now, mm. uh, and so he will be on them. I'm almost certain. And I mean, this has been true for the last like five or six years. If you look at the top ten most viewed organic posts on social media they're like always like four ben shapiro posts on facebook like daily wire whatever yeah these like barstool sports like it's just like these are these conservative organizations know how to use especially facebook's algorithm but probably increasingly other algorithms uh to their advantage um and this is also why like you see very commonly Republicans talking about ads because they want you to think about, like, political ads as, like, the problem, Mm. but the organic content is the problem. Uh, I I did not realize, and I'm now realizing, that Barstool Sports is a conservative organization. I get a lot of dog videos from them. Clearly, I've been targeted. They're they're misusing the money if I've been targeted (laughs) because I can't vote, but that is really interesting. And, like, it's a different kind of content, isn't it, to just political ads yeah absolutely. Yeah. yeah i don't think that they're they're like actively like telling you to vote for republicans but there's like a cultural yes like significance of like being homophobic on <laughs> on a social media platform is a, like an inherently republican thing to be doing yeah and, and do you think it's the generally shortening without getting too McLuhan-esque about it do you think it's the generally shortening form of social media that's driving in that kind of more simplistic direction it often feels like the fewer characters you have to work with the easier it is to make talking points associated with the right and the harder it is to make them with the left. Is that a, a problem, do you think? I Honestly, I don't know. Like, mm. I, I think that would be, like, interesting research to be done. But I also think that, like, anger broadly, regardless of length mm. of medium, is, like, an easier way of rallying people up. And especially mm. when platforms are incentivizing anger, like, that, it yeah. could be as simple as that. Yeah, um, it's exciting, right? Yeah, exactly. And so just if you were a democratic strategist uh who's been um <laughs> parachuted into one of the either one of these primary campaigns or, or the general in a year or two's time what, what would your kind of strategic advice be to a democratic candidate let's say coming up against you know billions in in television ads hundreds of millions of eyeballs on on social media so how do you fight that from from the more progressive perspective yeah um oh, I, w- I mean if i had the answer to this question we'd be good right yeah. um, <laughs> no but broadly i mean i think that like the the thing that we need to be trying to build into our political system is a sense of shared empathy. Like I think mm-hmm. uh, Bernie Sanders did a fantastic job of mm-hmm. this in his campaign when he would give speeches that were along the lines of like, can you look to the person to the left of you and care for them like you care for the people at home? Mm-hmm. And it's just like we that is like foundational to like what I believe politics should be. And I think that like most people when they're told like let's be nicer to everyone are kind of like yeah that seems like a a good idea yeah Uh, we just don't like say it enough and so i think like emphasizing like care for others and care for yourself and also it's just like i don't i i struggle so much with how like obvious to me it is that like the democrats have like the policy platform that the vast majority of Americans support and are like unable to get them to tie that to the party. I mean, the Republicans have had just like the most successful campaign of preventing people from tying policy to party here. Um, And so, I mean, they've tried so many different messaging strategies, but I think it's just about like trying, trying and trying more, you know, like how do you get people to realize that, you know, if 65% of the country wants universal health care, 
how how is it the case that uh, you know forty eight percent of the country approves of the Democrats' health care plan? That right. you know that doesn't make any sense, and we just have to work on the messaging problem there as much as possible. Mm-hmm. That's really that's really beautiful, and I think that actually, well, it's not just the U.S. We're kind of, I mean, we are losing that in the U.K. as well. We're definitely losing that. I mean, if we ever had it, that absence of care in politics, I think, mm-hmm. has been gone for a long time. Um, maybe people feel it on a local politician level. Sure. That's why people care about their MPs, I guess. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned a couple of times, maybe as a last point, that you <laughs> you will not be going back to, to political campaigning. <laughs> um, anything else that you'd, you'd see yourself doing? Or any perhaps, perhaps yeah, perhaps why? Yeah. Why, no, why no more politics? I think the campaign world just really wasn't for me, broadly. Um, I mean, you know, there's a lot of really great people doing what I think is very important work in political campaigns. But I, you know, came from a background of working in government, building technology that I could, like, immediately point to and be like, look, this is helping people, like, figure out if their home is getting foreclosed. Mm. Uh, That seemed like much more the type of building that I wanted to do. It's tough for me to like spend a lot of my time working with large data sets focused on like knocking on doors or like doing the political campaigns. Like I much rather organize than be data on like a political campaign because mm-hmm. there's still something very real feeling about it to me. Um, so I think that's mostly my hesitation for going back on campaigns. Also like, it's not an easy job. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you're signing up to just, like, be in the office for 12-hour days and, like, have, like, really stressful, like, interactions and everyone is, you know, absent sleep and it's just, like, not the most pleasant time. Mm. Um, and the defill was is a break from that because it's doing a bunch of research. But what I miss now is, like, building things, I think. Like, clearly working on something that I can, like, look at the outputs of and be like, okay, maybe this did some good for the world. Yeah. Um, and in a political campaign, if you win, you could probably feel that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you don't win, sometimes it's kind of just like, well, what was that all for? Uh, and th- I don't think that's, like, a healthy way of uh, treating this stuff. And all of you who are working on campaigns should continue doing so. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, it's just like, yeah, I think I'd rather be in government or mm-hmm. be working on tech policy, which is, you know, a whole other version of this, mm-hmm. um, or, like, building something that, that seems interesting. Mm-hmm. Well. I look forward to see what you what you build both with the default. I'm and very excited. Yeah, yeah, it's absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you both. That was um, really fascinating. I think I learned so much about your research and so much about politics in like half an hour. Yeah, which is one of the great things about having guests on the show. Definitely. Where can people find you online? Where would you prefer them to find you Ooh. online? Oh man, I guess it's only Twitter. But <laughs> who, know, who knows how long that'll last? Yeah, uh, yeah it's a uh, Twitter at Prothom J. Um, awesome. I own Prothom.com, and it'll happen oh. eventually. But wow. right now, it's a 404. This page right does by. not exist. Yeah. yeah. My uncle bought it for me when I was three years old. That's so cool. Yeah. And really makes me feel so old. <laughs> a lot of foresight. Was, a lot of foresight in there. Domain names weren't really on people's minds when I was three. But never mind. Frothing, <laughs> 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 great to talk to you and we'll be following your research with interest. See you awesome. soon. Thank you. Cheers. Bye. Bye.